If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On this week's episode, we're discussing the philosophy of science. At a time of uncertainty and doubt, many of us look to science to provide the answers. But does science deserve the authority we give it? And does our trust help? Or are challenging criticism better drivers of progress? To help us explore truth and science, we're joined by philosopher of science and author Nancy Cartwright. The locus of knowledge is not the individual, but the community that both gathers it and it can only be possessed by the community. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Nancy Cartwright. What I'm interested in is places where... um, where we trust science um, at the coal face, where it's really intersecting with what's happening in the concrete real world. I'm also interested in why we trust more abstract uh, practices, methods, and claims of science, but um, I've had my eyes operated on uh, with a laser, and I'm really realized how much I was trusting science at that stage and what, you know, why should I do this? What, why is it a reasonable um, thing for me to be betting on it? And the answer is because uh, here are some of the standard answers um, that I think aren't sufficient, okay? Uh, one of them is because of the scientific method. Okay? Another is because science is rigorous. Uh, third is science produces general truths by generalizing from well-tested results. And another is that science is objective. I actually got these. um, I'm gonna talk about science as rigors. But I extracted these. There are a number of agencies, um, many of them in America, because there's the issue of what do we teach for science in the public schools, uh, in the state schools in America. And so there are a number of agencies that have tried to tackle the question of what counts as science. But there's also um, some legislation uh, about what counts as evidence for um, educational policies. So uh, a number of agencies but also the American Physical Society and some places in Britain. So I scanned all of that. 
And I came up with this list, uh, which is what they say. Okay, um, and um, as I say, I don't think that um, these are either singly or jointly sufficient to pick out um, why trust science. And one of the things I've realized in thinking about this issue is that um, it's incredibly difficult to come up with a demarcation criterion that sorts science from non-science. But it's a lot easier to give some account of what counts as credible science. And that'll do the job, it'll also do that job for, um, in the US, what do you teach in school? Because after all, we don't want to be teaching non-credible science in, in school. So it's a little easier to tackle you know, what, what makes for credibility um, and sort of leaning towards what makes for credibility in science as opposed to theology or romance studies or uh, something like that. So th th I've decided to try and address the issue what makes for credible, trustworthy, uh, trust-deserving science. And uh, I, think the, I think that's actually what these agencies were doing. I mean, they weren't just talking about what makes something scientific. I mean, maybe the scientific <coughs> method, but um, uh, objectivity is something we cherish elsewhere. So here's a list, though, that I think is um, what I've extracted of the kinds of things people, other people have said uh, make for the trustworthiness of science. Um, I can talk about each of them, but not in half an hour. So I'm gonna talk about rigorous because it's one thing I've been writing a lot about lately. So rigorous results, okay, um, are like, um, I think of them now as like diamonds, okay? So that uh, if you wanna make uh, a diamond, if you wanna make a bracelet out of them, right? Uh, the bracelet doesn't just consist of those diamonds, right? Uh, the bracelet consists of lots and lots of other stuff that's been very craftily wound together, tangled together, built together, molded together by a, a community of jewelers who know how to do, have learned how to do this thing. Um, and uh, the, uh, the rigorous results are like the little nuggets of diamonds that go into that, but the final product, like the credibility of the laser, um, uh, you know, the credibility that the laser is gonna emit a cool beam and not burn my eyes, is um, based, I mean, it's like the end bracelet that we, uh, as scientists, mold out of using, among other things, rigorous results. So I want to um, mention uh, a, a story about high temperature superconductivity. So these are high temperature superconductors. And um, the story is told by Marilena de Bucchionico, who's a philosopher historian of science. And um, she, uh, very briefly, uh, there were two explanatory mechanisms on offer. This happened about uh, over a decade ago but there were two explanatory mechanisms on offer about what makes for, what accounts for um, high temperature superconductivity. It turns out that the theory of what makes for low temperature superconductivity wasn't moving over to when you got superconductors at higher temperatures. So what are the two, there were two explanatory mechanisms. We don't care exactly what they are, it's the sort of structure of the study. There were phonons or magnetic modes. And there were two warring camps who were very, very good at what they do and very dedicated to these two alternative explanations. And then, um, so we're gonna get a result 
a rigorous result, which is like this diamond, right? Um, so there was a rigorous result. Um, they got some new 3D imaging, um, and with the new ability to do this 3D imaging, they discovered something called a kink, okay, a kink in the energy uh, curve. Um, and both sides agreed that these experiments rigorously showed a kink in the dispersion curve. So there was, you know, I mean, every, everyone, this is really, really, let's say, rigorously done experiment. And the fact that there's a kink in the dispersion curve um, is thought to have been fairly rigorously established. Okay. Um, so that's like our piece of diamond. Now here's what Marilena says. Um, what's fascinating is that each of the two warring camps claim to account for the same evidence, that kink, right? They both claimed that that kink was in support of their theory and showed, refuted the other theory. So each took exactly the same diamond and with different jewelers and different additional materials, they <laughs> built that diamond in the two totally opposite uh, uh, opposing bracelets. Um, so I th that's just a nice illustration of how the rigorous result, right, it needs, it can be incorporated in exactly opposite, um, for exactly opposite conclusions when we want to do something more dramatic than just, you know, you're not ter ter probably terribly interested in uh, kink and a dispersion curve, but I think we all will eventually need to be interested in high temperature superconductivity and getting it to work better for us. Uh, okay, so. Um, so now remember, we had this list that uh, <coughs> um, science is credible because of these various things. Um, and the next thing I had just wanted to, this illustrates as well. Okay? I mean, I said I was gonna focus on the rigors, but it, the, the little story also evidence shows that um, we, science doesn't produce general truths by generalizing from well-tested results generalizing, okay, so there you've got this kink. And you might generalize that if you ever do this experiment again on the same materials, you'll get a kink, right? That's, well, maybe you think of that as generalizing, but you can't generalize from the rigorous result to uh, either of these explanatory mechanisms. Uh, that is, again, takes all of this other material that itself then has to be found to be credible um, and so forth, okay. So that's the, um, I'm not gonna go about science's objective or the scientific method, but we could discuss those, okay. So um, what more then, if we don't, if, it's, if I think that not, those are not um, separately sufficient, which is all I've talked about so far, but even piling them together, they're not enough. Um, to account for credibility. We need, I think we need something more, um, and I'm not sure what, what I add is enough, right? But um, I think it's really important to pay attention to um, the community, uh, which is not news because uh, people doing science studies have talked about how science is a community activity, and philosophers have worked a lot on, and philosophers who do theory of knowledge epistemology have talked about how the the locus of knowledge is not the individual, but the community that both gathers it and it can only be possessed by the community. So um, there's the community 
the scientific community that's engaged in uh, a set of practices together. Um, and then there's the tangle, okay? So um, what I'm interested in, again, is how you get from here to here. Um, and um, the community is um, very important for doing that, the scientific community. So here is, remember I talked about the National Research Council, well, these councils, that these or institutions that are helping us figure out, trying to help figure out what makes for credible science. Um, and this is the US National Research Council. And uh, I didn't put in the list, but they uh, stressed this, that the, um, that the community really matters. The objectivity and progress of scientific understanding in any field derives not from a given methodology, like this, or any scientific method, or a given person, rather it comes from the community of researchers. Okay, and um, it's because you've got a community, they're doing the different pieces, different kinds of pieces, uh, figuring out how to measure, figuring out what, what concepts to use, looking over their shoulders at each other. It's, a, it's both a cooperative and we know co highly competitive, uh, so that, uh, you know, checking up. Um, uh, on each other. Um, so uh, we also see the U.S. National Academy of Sciences that um, gives a, a definition of science. Scientific knowledge accumulates from the interplay of observation and explanation. Other scientists <laughs> confirm the observations independently and carry out additional studies. Observations and explanations build on each other. Um, in this way, the sophistication and scope of scientific explanations improve over time as subsequent generations um, of scientists, often technological innovate, often using technology, work to correct, refine, extend the work done by others. So again, the National Academy, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, uh, thinks that um, a lot of the trustworthiness of science depends on. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. On this interplay across generations and across different groups, um, building on each other, and I think also, you know, being critical of each other. So that's the um, that's the um, the first thing, the community, and then uh, the second is closely related, the tangle. Okay. Um, now, tangle. Um, this is when I was at LSE. This was my predecessor, uh, Karl Popper. Um, Karl Popper argued that he had a demarcation criterion to sort science from non-science. Um, whether he got in, um, got rid of everything that was non-science, we don't know, but he said it's not scientific if it's not falsifiable. So a scientific claim or a scientific set of claims, a theory, a hypothesis, um, uh, a way of looking at the world, um, it should be thick enough and have enough detail that it made 
it, you, you could tell what the world would be like if it were true, that it made a difference. So he didn't like, he didn't like Marx, and he didn't like Freud, because he claimed that, yeah, well, they have theories, they have elaborated theories, but, you know, um, if the rat man loves his father, Freud explains it one way. If he hates his father, Freud uses the same theory to explain it the other way. It's not thick enough, there's not enough detail there to constrain uh, what actually should happen, and that ain't no good for science. And I think it's particularly, uh, I'm interested in, um, as I said, science at the coal phase, where uh, we do those beautiful gravitational wave experiments, or we build a laser, um, or m millions of other things, the Oxford knee, um, build the Oxford knee from a team, interdisciplinary team. Um, I'm interested in those, and if you know their credibility is partly or depends a lot on the scientific activities which give rise to them, then it better be those scientific activities are actually rich enough to say, yeah, the laser should be this way. I mean, look, it's wrong. Don't trust it if they, you know, if they haven't made this adjustment or the mirrors aren't, um, uh, don't have the right um, curvature. Okay. So um, I think it's really, I, I mean, I take this lesson from Popper that you want uh, science uh, both for its own internal credibility, but also for the credibility of any of its deliverances, um, that science really ought to have delivered <laughs> uh, that, uh, that, that. So here we have um, a, a good scientist, Francis Crick says, a good scientist values criticism almost higher than friendship. Um, uh, no, in science, criticism is the height and measure of friendship. So this is, starting, I mean, sort of starting on the tangle, where you have the scientists checking up on each other's work. So there's sort of tangle of practices. It's not just the community, but the, 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 the structure of what the community is doing. There's a big tangle of practices which feed back one another on each other. So that's that, I mean, sort of checking each other's work. Here you have the checking each other's work. Again, you know, it's the, it's the checking up, but it's the checking up not just of one scientist on another, but of one kind of activity on another. So my sort of standard um, easy, easy example is just if you think, don't think about science in general and concept validation, but you want to design a measure for a concept. And designing a measure for a concept um, like learning readiness, something that uh, is a big topic in education now. Um, how do we measure learning readiness? Well, in order to design a way to measure it, you've got to have some idea what it is that you're going to measure, right? So you have to give a characterization of the concept. And once you've characterized it, you have to come up with a way to represent it. I mean, is learning readiness something that you can put on a scale from a continuous scale? I mean, are you more learning ready than she is? And are you more learning ready by 10 units or, uh, you know, how? And the, and the thing is that the way you represent it has to reflect the kind of thing it is. I mean, is it really the kind of thing that you can say he's got 10 more units of it than she, or is it not? And then the third thing you have to do is you have to design some on-the-ground things you do right, to decide whether he's got 10 more units of learning readiness than she does. And all of that has to fit together consistently. Um, and then when you realize actually sometimes that your operations are giving you funny answers and the thing isn't behaving the way you thought it should, sometimes you realize actually 
that wasn't the concept you meant in the first place. So anyway, so all I'm thinking about is even just in the one tiny practice of designing a measure for a concept, we have this feeding back and forth uh, and kind of consistency uh, that has to be developed. So this is my picture. Uh, I've done a little work on this with something called the democratic peace theory, uh, which is roughly the idea democracies don't go to war with democracies. Um, it's had good effects, but the U.S. government has, over many presidents from um, Bush to Obama, so <laughs> the good guys and the bad guys, uh, uh, have believed that it's true and said, well, you know, we democratize, it's a good thing, but it will also bring peace to the world. So that's <laughs> has been, been used as an excuse for American foreign policy. Um, but what's nice about the democratic peace theory is that doesn't follow from that, right? Uh, and it's been debated and studied for 15, really assiduously for 15 or 20 years, and there's a huge political science literature on it, and it spills over outside of political science and international relations and economics and so forth. And um, I've done, looked at a lot of the, I mean, the reason I found that exciting is because these people have really been hard at work at it. There's lots and lots of different definitions of democracy, which is the right one. Well, there isn't the right definition of democracy. It depends on what you're interested in. So you design a, a definition of democracy, and then remember thinking about measures, you not only have to have that, but you have to figure out how to, how, how to tell whether something is a democracy in that sense. And then there's statistical studies, that was the first thing that was noticed, that, that things that are quite apparently, you know, almost all of us would count democracies, don't seem to have gone to war with democracies. Uh, so, that, but now you've got a definition of democracy, you know, can you back that up with statistics, Is uh, and how long is the history? So some of the work has been done going back to Greek city-states, well, where the definitions don't quite fit any of them, so I have to devise new definitions. Is it reasonable to include what happened in the Greek city-states in it? Anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful morass of real serious work uh, with no agreement that this claim democracies don't go to war with democracies has a very specific meaning, but you know, there's enough there that, uh, and there are a dozen different explanations for why it might be true and debate back and forth, and then you know talk about you know in many cases it's more than one of the explanation. It's science as usual. I mean science as it's actually done, and um, there are there are bits of this theory that I would be very happy to use to make predictions about what might happen when tensions come up, um, you know, in uh, various places. Uh, there are bits of it I wouldn't, <laughs> things that are um, only democracy under you know, very special definitions, but sort of things that come out of the center of the tangle, I think are probably you know, any prediction that comes out of the center of the tangle, I'd be pretty happy to rely on. Uh, but that's because I've looked at it, and I think that um, there's so much back and forth that you know, if it doesn't work for these cases, I mean, that's pretty, uh, that would be pretty surprising. Okay, so anyway, these are the, 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 those are the elements of the tangle that I found uh, for that case. So we have here, sorry, um, these, okay, uh, science is 
as properly conducted or when it's, <laughs> when, it's uh, when these characteristics are true of it, it's trustworthy. Um, if it you know, uses proper use of the scientific method, whatever that is, uh, I always think it's a mistake to talk about the scientific method because we should, um, once you've picked methods and you've privileged methods, it restricts what you can learn and um, you should be, what we should be doing in science is discovering what the world is like and not legislating by saying, well, only study it with these methods. And I've been, um, I've been thinking a lot about that because I've been working on evidence-based policy where for establishing causal conclusions, there's been this movement that says, you have to do a randomized control trial. That's the method. That is the method that can establish a causal conclusion. No other way to do it. And then you can't do very much with that. Right? Uh, you can establish, if you did it perfectly, you can get a, something called an unbiased estimate of an average treatment effect in the population studied. And I think there's a lot more ways to find out about causation and that also they're limiting what they think causation is um, and quite limiting it beyond, well beyond what you know, philosophical views about what causation is and you know, reasoned ways about about how to measure it. But anyway, scientific method, um, I think it's, it's a, a mistake to talk about the scientific method, but there are methods <laughs> that we've honed and know how to use in various sciences, and um, they do lend for credibility. Anyway, because, there's, because of the scientific method, because science is rigorous, science produces general truths uh, by generalizing, uh, science is objective, has well, uh, also. Um, well, besides that, I wanna say it's because of the community and the tangle. Okay, so, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Flumps. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>